1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 1. The Word of God says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, He was seen of James, then of all the apostles, Last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believe. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not raised? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Let's pray. Lord, we love you this morning. We thank you for this good crowd. We thank you for the good spirit we've already felt. Now, Lord, I pray this morning that you do something supernatural in our midst. Lord, I don't mean something visible. I don't mean something sensational uh, according to man's perception. But I mean, Lord, I, I pray that you deal with hearts this morning. I pray that no doubt in a crowd this size, you chose 12 disciples, one of whom was a devil. Lord, in a room this size, it wouldn't be surprising if we were to find out there was somebody lost, undone without Christ. I pray this morning you'd show them that we love them. I pray this morning you'd show them that you love them. I pray this morning that you'd show them that great love of Calvary and that they might place their faith in the finished work of Christ. Lord, we love you this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to take three simple thoughts this morning about the resurrection and examine them. And we might say this, that it's almost as though we're going into a court of law. You know, Paul had a habit of sort of doing that. I guess he spent so much time in jail. He was used to what a courtroom scene looked like. And all through the book of Romans he does this. But not just there. Often when he uh, began to take pen in hand and write under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he would begin to uh, lay out a logical argument before the reader and would begin to substantiate it with facts and truths that could be perceived and known. Now, here's one of the things people always say when you talk about the resurrection. They'd say, well, I just can't believe it because it's so unscientific. Well, I would venture to say this to you this morning. Just because something is beyond the realm of what science can perceive, that does not mean that it's beyond the realm of what is reality and truth. 
Now, listen, I'm not talking about ghouls and goblins and ghosts. I'm not talking about Ouija boards. But I'm saying there are certain things that may be outside of what science can observe and substantiate that still we treat with the same authenticity and veracity that we do other things. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, how many of you in here believe that Napoleon Bonaparte lived? Anybody? Anybody? One or two? Okay. Prove it. Take me into a science lab and prove it. You can't do it. See, history is outside of the bounds of what science can observe. Anybody in here believe in a thing called love? Amen? Take me into a science lab and prove the reality of it. See, the truth is, we get real scientific when we think we can kick the legs out from under the Word of God. But then when it comes to other matters in life, science isn't such a big hang-up for us. There are a lot of things that are outside of the realm of what science can perceive and observe and prove. But we accept them to be true because we understand that science is not the master of all things. Certainly, science, I believe, is a good thing. Somebody say amen to that. I'm for it. Amen. People ask me sometimes, preacher, are you for for education? Well, I ain't for stupidity. Amen. I mean, I'm for it. I'm I'm not against it, but I'm saying there are limitations to it. And I believe the Apostle Paul lays out a substantial argument. By the way, I think if, if Paul was laying out this same argument to put a man in prison, he'd be convicted by a, a, a unanimous jury. And he lays these things out. And I want you to consider them with me very quickly this morning. Now, notice first off, there is a past reality to the resurrection. That's how he begins. He starts in verse number 1 by talking about the gospel. And in verse number 3, he says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Let me say, first off, we see the resurrection recorded for us. God's Word, lest we should wonder... God's Word makes abundantly clear the visible, literal, bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you say, preacher, how do we know that? Well, what else would Paul be talking about? Look at the other people he mentions. He talks about Cephas. That's the Apostle Peter. There was no question that Peter was a real, live, flesh and bone human being. He talks about James. There's no question James was a real, live, flesh and bone human being. In fact, Herod would later on uh, separate his head from his shoulders. There's no question that all of the things that uh, Paul talks about in those two verses and in the, the ones that follow deal with real, literal, historical events. He says that uh, the Lord was seen of above, of 500 brethren. He says He was seen of uh, Cephas and of the other disciples. He was seen of the apostles. These are all literal people and literal events that He's talking about. So let's go ahead just this morning and just nail it down, if that's all right. And let's just say this. The Bible teaches the physical bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So if we are going to reject the resurrection, then to do so, we must reject the entire Bible. Amen? Uh, now, that, that's hemmed us in. That's boxed us in. You see, there's a lot of people in this, this same crowd that says, well, you know, I, a lot of them are, and I'm not against theologians. Somebody, I, somebody got mad at me one time because I was talking about theologians. I'm not against theologians. I'm, I'm just, I'm wary of anything I can't spell. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, I don't know, I said something, I, something like, you know, these people have degrees, you can have 32 degrees and still be frozen according to a thermometer or something. I don't know. You know, preachers say things sometimes, but... They got upset at me because I was talking. Uh, listen, I, I believe in theology. I believe in the study of God proper. Well, there's a lot of people that call themselves theologians and they write books and they go to conferences and they speak. And a lot of people pay a lot of money. But you get digging into what they believe and you find out that they just don't believe the Word of God. 
they claim to be a theologian studying the Word of God, but they're not studying a book that they believe in. Amen? How would you feel if your math teacher got up in school and said, hey, open in your book, by the way, it's wrong? That wouldn't, that wouldn't produce a lot of confidence, would it? Amen? What if your college professor says, hey, we're going to study this course, but I don't even believe in this? Well, a lot of the theologians, they claim to believe the Bible, but then they say they reject the resurrection. You cannot have it both ways. If you want to reject the resurrection, I'm serious this morning, and I didn't, I didn't come in with, with loaded for bear, I promise you. I come in, I'm in a good spirit, I'm in a good mood. Got these beautiful Easter lilies up here. Uh, we got a good crowd. I, I'm, I'm feeling good. I got bright, colorful suspenders that my wife made me wear. I, you know, I, I feel good. I'm, I didn't come up here loaded for bear. But, but I do mean this this morning. Now listen, there is no middle ground on this. You either accept the resurrection or you reject the resurrection. And if you accept the truth of the Word of God, then you must accept the resurrection. And if you reject the resurrection, then you can only do so while rejecting the entirety of the Word of God. So we see the Word of God uh, substantiates. It records the resurrection. Notice not only it was recorded, but notice the resurrection was witnessed. Look what it says in verses 5 through 7. Paul says, "...and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. Now listen to this. This is interesting. Of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James and then of all the apostles. We see the resurrection was a witnessed event. In other words, this wasn't something that just happened somewhere out in the desert that nobody was, was privy to. You know, it didn't like, uh, you, you know, the, the Mormons, they, they believe that, that Joseph Smith, an angel came down from heaven, gave him golden tablets that he could, could read from, and, and he said, but nobody can read from them but me. And, and he would hide them. And then, then after a while he said, well, I lost the tablets, so I've got to write them down for myself. But you just trust me that I'm telling you the truth. Right? I don't know about you, but some just don't, I mean, that smells funny to me. Amen? Seems to me like if, if what you believe is so uh, blatantly and apparently true, then you wouldn't have to hide it away and claim yourself as a sole source of truth and a, a verification. You know, Paul, he's not saying, believe me. He's saying, you can go and check with Peter. You can go. At this time, he couldn't have checked with James. James had gone on to be with the Lord. But he's saying, you can go and check with Peter. You can go and check with the other disciples. You can go. There was 500 people there that day that saw him ascend up into the heavens. You can go. You can talk unto them. And then he says this, of whom the greater part remain unto this day. You know what he's saying? He's saying, check me out. That's what he's saying. Check up on me. There's people walking the earth today that were there when the resurrection took place. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying this is not a private truth. This isn't something that I alone claim. I'm not claiming anything that cannot be substantiated. Let me ask you something. What do you think would happen if somebody carted you down to the jail and said uh, that you had murdered someone, and you said, well, I'm innocent, I never did it, and they said, well, we got six witnesses that saw you. Son, you'd be sewed up. That'd be it. If you could get six witnesses together in a court of law to all say we saw the exact same thing, that would be enough to put a man to death. What if you had 500 and some odd there saying the same thing? You see, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying the world wants to hold the Word of God to a different standard than it holds the average testimony in a hit-and-run case down at the county courthouse. Paul says you can check up on it. You can see. I read a quote this week I thought was interesting. Uh, It was by Charles Colson. He made this statement about the resurrection. He said, "I, I believe in the resurrection. I believe it's true. I believe it's reality. And he said, the thing that convinced me of it was Watergate. Watergate. Now, they said, so what do you mean? He said, here's what I mean. Uh, Twelve of the most powerful men in the world 
couldn't keep a secret for even a week. You're telling me that the twelve disciples for 40 years kept a secret and did not tell anybody. But let me go a step further than Mr. Colson and say this. It wasn't just 12 disciples. Over 500 individuals had their names put down on the court docket and said, I'll stand, I'll testify, I'll say that I saw this, I'll say that it's real. I think if we're looking for eyewitnesses, and by the way, doesn't that fall, isn't that all that's needed for historical evidence? Right? I mean, people would probably say this. I said my old thing about Napoleon. And somebody may, this may have even crossed their mind. They may have said something like this. Well, but preacher, there's history books. There's documentation. There's things written. Well, can I tell you something that Napoleon doesn't have that Jesus Christ does have? That's the New Testament church. That's a perpetuating group of people that have experienced the reality of his life, death, and resurrection and can still stand here today and say, I know that he is risen because he lives within my heart. We see the resurrection recorded and witnessed. But then notice what Paul says. We see the resurrection experienced. He says in verse 8, last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, I wasn't one to Christ during Christ's earthly ministry. That's what he means by born out of due time. He's not saying I wasn't alive when Christ was walking the earth. We know that that's actually not true. He would have probably been a young man at that time, but he would have been alive. In fact, he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel, who was alive during the time of Christ as well. Paul was there just a short while after the resurrection, whenever Stephen was stoned to death. Paul was a grown man holding the coats of the people that stoned him to death. Paul was alive when the Lord walked the earth. But when he says born out of due time, he's saying, I didn't trust in Christ when he was walking this earth. He's saying, I did not dwell with him in in the upper room. I didn't see all the miracles take place, but I still know that he's real. How do I know that? He says, as one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. You remember, he's telling the story of how he used to go all over the countryside and he used to chase after Christians. And he would try to persecute them. He'd take them, he'd throw them in jail. He'd have them sentenced to death. He was the greatest uh, investigator that the Judaizers in Jerusalem had. When they wanted to stamp out Christianity, they sent old Saul of Tarsus to go track down these Christians and to throw them in jail. But listen to what happened. Verse number 10, something takes place. Now remember, in verse number 9, he's on his way to Tarsus, right? He's saying, I persecuted the church of God. Then something happened in verse 10. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, you can turn over and read it in Acts chapter number 9. What happened? Paul, he's traveling down the road on the way to Damascus, and all of a sudden a light shines from heaven that outshone the sun. The Bible says that when he tells the story later, he says it was exceeding bright, even brighter than the noonday sun. The Bible says that it knocked him off the horse he was traveling on, struck him blind. He hit the ground. Scales went over his eyes. He was completely blind. And he heard a voice speak from heaven, Saul, Saul, uh, uh, that that persecutest me. He spoke out and he said, "Uh, Who art thou that kickest against the pricks? And Paul cried out. And uh, Of course, the Bible says that he he submitted. He accepted the Lord. He yielded. Uh, When he asked, he said, Who art thou? He said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, I know Christ rose from the dead. I know it because I know Peter, and I know John, and I know all the apostles, and I know that they saw him. I know that he resurrected because I can read in the Word of God the prophecies concerning the resurrection and how Christ fulfilled all those prophecies. But he's saying, the real way that I know that he rose from the dead is because he appeared to me, spoke to me, saved me, and changed me. 
Now listen, and this is where this is where secular humanists they they they, they get to a crossroads with Christians because they uh, you know a lot of Christians they'll talk about the apologetics and they'll try to prove things along a line of logic. But here's the reality: uh, this thing is a thing of faith. We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, it's not by the law of works, but it's by the law of faith that we're justified. So if you're not unwilling to place your faith in Christ, then you can only go so far in the pursuit of the study of this book. At some point, if you're going to know God, you're going to have to put your faith in Christ to know God. And it reaches a point, they'll say, well, what about this and what about that and what about this? And then they'll reach a place of disagreement where they say, well, you haven't proved to me that he's resurrected and I haven't proved to you that he hasn't. Why are you so stubborn in your viewpoint? At the end of the day, a born-again, blood-washed believer will undoubtedly say this, I know, I know that he rose because he's alive within me and he saved me and changed me. In other words, listen, I'm not saying I don't know what happened 2,000 years ago. All that matters is what happened on December 1st, 1997. I'm saying I know what happened 2,000 years ago because of what happened on December 1st, 1997. Christ could not save us were He not risen from the grave. There's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Even if He had died for your sins, if He had not rose from the dead, He could not facilitate a relationship between you and God. He had to rise from the dead. So it's a visible, literal, bodily resurrection. There is a past reality to the resurrection. Let me say number two, there is a present reality to the resurrection. Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? I mean the resurrection reaches 2,000 years and touches today. It affects the way that we live. It affects what we do. If you're here and saved by God's grace, then that is affected by the reality of the resurrection. In fact, let me give you a few thoughts I think will help you with what I mean. Look down at verse number 12. The Bible says, Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is also in vain. Let me say, number one, that the resurrection today for the believer gives us our faith. Now, when I use the word faith, I do mean faith in the sense of faith we exercise, but I also mean faith in the sense of the body of what we have placed our hope in. Listen, what we believe today, this Bible means nothing if Christ didn't raise from the dead. What we're doing here today, and I, I know people are, are at church for all kinds of reasons on, on Easter. I understand you may, you may have come because somebody you love dearly asked you to. You may have been meaning to come and thought this would be a good day. But for, for those that have come to worship today, do you understand that the only, or that the very centerpiece of our relationship with God and of the reason we meet here in this house, while we sing the songs that we sing, while we fellowship one with another, while we preach this book, it all hinges on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Christ did not raise from the dead, I could not know God. You see, the Bible teaches us clearly that God and the sinner are far apart. You know, the Bible says in Isaiah that your sin hath separated you from your God. So us and God, we're far apart. We need someone to draw us close to the Lord. As we already mentioned a moment ago, when Christ died for our sins, that took care of our sin debt. But that could have not in and of itself brought us rightfully into a relationship with God had Christ not then rose from the dead to be able to mediate for us. We All we would have, listen, we'd have a debt-free, dead condition. That's all we would have. We still wouldn't know God. We still wouldn't have Christ living within us. We still wouldn't be indwelt by the Holy Ghost. By the way, the Bible makes clear that the Holy Ghost did not indwell men until after the resurrection. Why? Because Christ arose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and
and brought gifts on high. And He brought back to mankind what? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the consistent, constant, comforting presence of the Spirit of God within us. If we reject the resurrection, we don't have anything to preach. Right? Listen, there's lots of folks that purport to be religious leaders. But what makes Christ different? The thing that makes Christ different is that He defeated death. I understand He's the Son of God, right? I understand that He was sinless. I understand the other purported leaders are not sinless. I understand all that. But none of that would matter had He not been able to defeat our greatest enemy, which is the enemy of death. He goes on. We didn't read it and we won't take the time to, but you read on through the chapter and it talks about, you know, the last verse we read when we were reading our text, for He must reign, let put all enemies under His feet. It goes on to talk about the enemy of death. What would Jesus have been saving us from if He couldn't have saved us from death? Now, some of you are going to say, but preacher, even saved people die. Yeah, I understand that. But death for us is not a finality. Death for us is not the perishing and descending into eternal punishment. It wouldn't have been enough just for Jesus to pay our sin debt. He also had to raise from the grave so that He might facilitate a relationship with God. I would say that it gives us our faith. Let me say number two. I believe it gives us our forgiveness. Look what he says. Verse number 16. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, it's empty, it's meaningless, there's nothing to it. Ye are yet in your sins. Who would have applied the forgiveness of God had Christ not risen from the dead? Again, the sinner is distant from God. You see this all through the Old Testament. God had a place that He sat down on earth and dealt with humanity. It was within the Holy of Holies, that holiest place in the tabernacle. And only one person was allowed to go in there, and only on one day a year, and that was on Yom Kippur, the high priest, the Day of Atonement, was allowed to go in, and he had to come in with shed blood, and he had to come in to give a sacrifice for the people. And all through the Old Testament, there is a consistent theme that denotes that here's God up here, and here's man down here, and man can't get up here to where God's at. The law was given. We've been studying it in Sunday school. The law was given in uh, chapter uh, number 1 of the book of Romans. The law was given that the whole world would become guilty before God, that every mouth would be stopped. The Old Testament law was not given to bring men close to God, but to show them their vast distance from God. Uh, mankind said, we want to know what we have to do to live like you, God. And God said, all right, here's what you'd have to do. And by the way, that's just a drop in the bucket of what they would have to do. But he gave them a big, long list. And people say, well, the Ten Commandments, I can keep those. Hey, listen, the Old Testament law was not just the Ten Commandments. Right? I know that. Uh, listen, I know Charlton Heston, he looked good up on the hillside and that hair flowing and the robe. But that don't get your theology from that, all right? The the Old Testament law was more than just the Ten Commandments. The Old Testament law was over 600 commandments in the Old Testament that dealt with all matters of social and personal life and spiritual life and ceremonial life. And the intent in giving those was not to say, here's how you can get close to God. The intent was to show men how far they were from God. It was given that sin might be given, given, uh, might enlarge sin, if I can use that terminology, that the knowledge of sin might be expanded, that men might know how really wicked they are. And you say, well, preacher, what did God do about that? Well, you've probably heard this verse once or twice in your life. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believed in Him should not perish, but of everlasting life. The Bible teaches us that God, in Romans chapter 3, declared His righteousness for the forbearance of sin, for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. God allowed Christ to become and bear our sin debt on Calvary. But now here's the problem. Had He stayed dead, how would that forgiveness have been applied? 
How do we come to God? The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That if thou shalt believe in my heart that Jesus Christ died according to the Scriptures and rose again according to the Scriptures, thou mayest. How is it that we approach unto God? We approach by placing our faith in Christ. You see, part of the problem, we, we treat salvation the same way that we treat like kids believing in... Well, I'll use the Easter Bunny. All our, our, most of our children and church kids are over there. I ain't going to crush anyone's reality, all right? And if you listen, if you're over 18 years old and you believe in the Easter Bunny, I can't help you. There's just you got problems bigger that you need to go to one of these big churches. Got a lot of counselors. I can't. I can't do a thing for you. Okay. Now, we, a lot of times, you know how we treat this thing of believing in Christ? We treat it in the same way that you look backward at historical events. Now, that is true. To trust in Jesus Christ, you do have to accept and believe the veracity of the scriptural account, right? That's the reason when the gospel's presented in the first few verses of this chapter, it keeps saying, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. We do need to believe the historical account. We do have to accept what the Bible says. But it's much further than that. We, we treat believing in Jesus the same way like if I was to ask you, do you believe in Caesar, Augustus? And we think that what it means is to accept the fact of his life and his existence. That's not what believing in Jesus Christ is. To believe in Jesus Christ is to effectually place the care of your soul into his hands. In other words, to say, I've been trusting baptism to get me to heaven, but I'm not going to trust that anymore. I'm going to ask the Lord to forgive me and save me, and I'm going to trust that to get me to heaven. Uh, you've been saying, hey, I'm a church member somewhere, and, uh, the, you know, I belong, my name's on the roll. Not trusting that to get you to heaven. Maybe you've got a daddy that's a pastor or a preacher or a granddaddy or a great-granddaddy that was a deacon or whatever it might be, but saying I've been trusting that and saying I'm not going to trust that anymore. That's not trustworthy. It's not scripturally viable as a means of getting to God. I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to ask Jesus to forgive me and save me. I'm going to place my soul. In His care. I'm going to say, Lord, please save me from my sins and forgive me. You see now why we cannot get forgiveness except we believe in a risen Savior? There's no one in whose hands to place the, the vouchsafing and trust and care of our soul if Christ be not risen from the dead. Let me say, not only do we get our faith and we get our forgiveness, but we also get our fortitude. i got a Bible somewhere. There it is. We get our fortitude. <laughs> Look down at verse 18 19. The Bible says, Then they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. The Bible's very clear that living for Christ is not an easy life. Yea, all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Christ said the world hated me, it's going to hate you. There's no question if we live for Christ, and I don't just mean being saved, but I mean if we sell out and give our life to Christ and really live like the Bible tells us, we're going to meet opposition. And we're going to have tough times. It's going to be difficult. One of the things that the reality of the resurrection does for you and me is it gives us fortitude to face those things. And there are two basic things that I think are one, one thing particularly that's in view here, and that is the loss of someone we love. It says, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If we don't accept the resurrection of Christ, then we have no reason to accept the resurrection of the dead. And if we don't accept the resurrection of the dead, then guess what? We can't accept the reality or the truth that we're ever going to see our loved ones again. 
I've been, I've done a lot of funerals. I've stood a lot of funerals. I've talked to a lot of people that have gone through funerals. You see it all the time on TV. I, I was watching something the other day that was talking about uh, somebody had passed away, somebody had, had died, and, and uh, it was some kind of reality show or something. And they were talking about, uh, they said, well, just, just know that they're watching over you. Can I say something to you this morning? If you don't believe in the resurrection, then why would you have any hope of ever seeing your loved ones that have died again? If it's, uh, why would you think that it's impossible for the Son of God to raise from the dead, but it's possible for Mamaw to raise from the dead, or Papaw to raise from the dead? See, the reality is these two things are, are inseparably linked one to another. And he says this, when we lose people that we love, one of the things that gives us fortitude to press on, to go on, is the fact that we know that death for the believer is not the end of things. It's not the period, it's the comma. It's not the, it's not the end of the line, it's the doorway to another reality and to another realm. And as such, that gives us fortitude to pass through and to experience and to bear up under those things. Then not only through losing a loved one, but through the difficulty of life. If in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. Let me tell you something. As a believer, it gives me great hope and great encouragement and great confidence to know that this life is not all there is. Be honest with you. This life is full of misery. Now, I'm, I'm blessed. I already told you. I mean, it is a wonderful day. I'm, I'm, I feel good. My wife, she's sick at home. And somebody looked at me. They said, I'm sorry, your wife ain't here. I said, well, that's for me to keep up with. Amen. But isn't that awful? Don't tell her I said that. But, uh, I, you know, I mean, it's, it's a good day. I've got nothing to complain about in life. But I think we all understand that life is a difficult thing and a difficult process. You face things you don't expect. You go through things you can't explain. You deal with heartache and, and turmoil and trial. You cry tears. You scream screams of anger. This life is a difficult thing. How depressing would it be to believe that this is all there is? Now you say, well, preacher, surely there's something else later on. Why would you believe that if you don't believe there's a resurrection of the dead? If the Son of God can't rise from the dead, then how do you expect that one of these days you're going to rise from the dead? You're going to be all right even though he wasn't all right. You see, he's... Throwing apart the logic of the world. Now, I want to give you one final thing, and I'm done this morning. Not only is there a past reality of the resurrection and a present reality of the resurrection, but in this chapter, we're also reminded that there is a prophetic reality to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in other words, we know Christ really rose from the dead. We uh, feel and experience that change in our lives today. It touches and affects everything about the uh, Christian experience. But then beyond that... It promises us that there's coming a day of future resurrection. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of doctrine this morning. I know nobody, everybody comes to church uh, on Easter for chocolate, not for doctrine. I understand that, all right? But we're going to give you some chocolate, I think, so you can deal with just a little bit of doctrine. Uh, you know, the Bible teaches us very clearly that there are two resurrections that are coming. In fact, the Bible presents to us very clearly that there is a resurrection of the saved and there is a resurrection of the unsaved that is coming. And in fact, the Bible even goes further and reminds us that there are two facets to the resurrection for the saved. Now, I'm going to explain what I mean, but let me say this. That the prophetic reality of the resurrection is expressed, first of all, at the tomb. Now, you might say, preacher, I thought we were looking in the future. Why are we looking back to the tomb, the empty tomb of Christ, for something about the prophecies concerning the resurrection? Well, here's why. Because the resurrection of Christ serves as a pattern for the resurrection of the saints 
one day at Christ's coming. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Look down at verses 47 through 49. The Bible says, The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, and by the way, it's talking about Adam. You can go through, you can read and study, but when it says the first man, we know who the first man is. That's Adam, right? It's saying, as is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. So, in other words, those that are born of Adam, it's all of us, somebody say amen to that. Those that are born of Adam are of the earth. They have an earthly reality for them. Such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, right, we're human beings, we got Adam had ten toes, ten fingers, right, we got ten toes and ten fingers, uh, Adam uh, had two eyeballs, two, uh, two ears, uh, a, a nose, everything, I, I, I tend to believe he had about two or three chins, somebody say amen to that, that maybe that's just make me feel better, um, but we, we bear the image of the earthy, we bear the image of him. The Bible says, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, this is why you see these bumper stickers sometimes. People say, born right the first time. And I'll be honest, it, I, I learned a long time ago not to get angry at people like that. They're just, you know, they're, they're in darkness, and I understand that, uh, you know. Uh, but they say, well, I was born right the first time. Well, no, you weren't. When you were born the first time, you were born after the image of Adam. That's why you have to be born again. You see, Adam died, Right? Adam bore the sufferings of this world's experience, right? Adam's physical body did not live eternally. It went into the ground. It rotted away. That's not good enough. You have to be born again after the second man. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice again carefully what it says. It says, and as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the earthy, so shall also we bear the image of the heavenly. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we want to know what the resurrection body is like, we can look to His body and His experience as an example or pattern. You know, the Bible talks about in Colossians that He is the firstborn from the dead. And that word for firstborn, we have an English word we get from that, and it's the word prototype. Now, you know what a prototype is, right? That is, when you're going to build a product for mass production, you build one to make sure it works right. And that becomes the pattern by which everything else is measured. In the same way, the way that the Lord Jesus rose in power and in glory from the grave. In other words, He rose incorruptible. Amen? He rose, and that sin that He had become and born was no longer with Him. Amen? He had dealt with that. He had done away with that. He rose, the book of Romans says, to die no more. Death had no more dominion, no more hold upon Him. All these things prefigure and are prototypes for the resurrection we're going to experience. Whenever we, uh, the Lord returns in, and for His church, those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ are going to be raised incorruptible and we're going to be given a new body. Paul said it this way. He said, our vile body shall be made like unto His glorious body. Our vile body shall be made like unto His, speaking of Jesus, glorious body. So we look first off at the tomb to get an understanding of this. Number two, we look at the trumpet. Now look what it says in verses 21 and 23. The Bible says, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Now, what this means is this. The Bible teaches the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming back. 
It is imminent, meaning at the door, meaning it could happen at any moment. It could happen before we're done with this sermon. Some of y'all may be wishing for that before we're all said and done this morning. But it could happen before the end of this sermon. It could happen before you get out of your car. It could happen before I finish this sentence. The Lord could come back. It is upon us at any moment. And the Bible teaches when He returns, He's returning for those that have placed their faith in Him. And this presents a little bit of a problem, right? Because some of us, I believe, will be alive at the Lord's coming. Some of us will be dead at the Lord's coming. In fact, the entire book of 1 Thessalonians is centered around this argument. There was people that were saying, the Lord has already returned. And then people were looking around saying, "Uh uh-oh, he didn't get me. Amen? And so the Apostle Paul was refuting that heresy. And listen to what he says about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, behold, or I'm sorry, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Paul talks about it in this same chapter we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. He says this, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning we're not all going to die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye At the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So, in other words, the resurrection of Christ is the first fruits. It's the pattern. Uh, We're getting ready to put our garden out. Man, we need to. We're getting late at it. But we're getting ready to put it out. And and, and a lot of times, uh, listen, even if you don't know what that plant is in in the ground, when it starts bearing fruits, you'll know. Amen? Last year we, uh, and I've got to hasten, but last year we put out 24 tomato plants. And we were trying to put out Marglow tomato plants. And uh, we started putting them out. And after they had been in the ground for a little while, we got to look and we thought, man, some of those tomato plants look funny. And pretty soon, believe it or not, somehow they got mixed up in there. We had about six Roma tomato plants. Now, when it was first in the ground, you couldn't see it. But when the first fruits started to come out, then you could tell there was a difference. It was markedly different. And would you believe it? Every one of those Roma tomato plants, they kept bearing Roma tomato plants till the end of the season. There wasn't one of them that just looked over at the Margo plant and said, well, you know, they look like good tomatoes. I'm going to become a Margo tomato plant. And vice versa. That didn't happen. What the first fruits were were what the rest of the fruits were. Christ is the first fruits. But then whenever Christ returns... The Bible teaches us that the saints that are asleep are going to be raised incorruptible, and the saints that are alive are going to have their bodies changed and be given an incorruptible body. Now, you say, preacher, is that the end of it? No, that's not the end of it. Let me give you one final thing. Look what it says, verse number 24. The Bible says, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he have put all enemies under his feet. Now, in this verse, it's not explicitly stated, but I believe it's hinted at, that there is another resurrection that is going to take place after the resurrection we've read about. After all the saved have either been raised from the dead or their bodies changed. After Christ has sat upon His throne and reigned for a thousand years. The Bible teaches us there is one more resurrection coming after that. And it is the resurrection that the unsaved will experience. Turn over to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to read this, say a word about it, be done this morning. You got you probably got peeps in the car melting. Amen. <laughs> I wish that preacher would hurry. I got Reese's eggs out there. 
Revelation chapter 20, look at verse number 11. The Bible says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. Now you understand, we're in the celestial sphere when we're reading this passage. We're in God's heaven. The heavens, meaning the firmament, and the earth are being destroyed at this moment. And all of existence has been brought solemnly into His presence. The Bible says this, verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. Verse 14, And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. You know what people say oftentimes? And again, I, I, I hope everybody in this room is saved already. But, but I'm aware on Christmas Day, like I said, a lot of people come because Mama invites them or Grandmama. And, 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 and I want you to know, we're proud for you to be here. Uh, listen, if you've not been here in, in a whole year and you walked in, I'm proud you're here. I'm glad you're here. I really mean that. I'm thrilled. I, I'm, I'm excited to see you. But a lot of times when people come to church on Easter, we understand that on Easter, a lot of times you're going to have people that don't know the Lord in the congregation. And if that's the case this morning, you may be thinking something to this end. You know, that's good, everything that preacher says. That's pretty, and I'm glad Mom likes it, and I'm glad Mamaw likes it, or whatever it might be. But I just don't believe it. It's just not something I can go for. It's not something I believe. I just, I can't go in for all that. And by saying that, I think that we tend to think that if we reject it, we won't have to one day reconcile with it. We think, well, that's good for them. And you're taught that. You're taught that all growing up. Everybody believes their own thing. And whatever everybody believes is fine and everything. And, you know, listen, I understand what that means. And I believe that's good for a country. I believe in democracy. Somebody say amen to that. I don't believe we ought to, we ought to force people to this, that, or the other. But understand that just because you reject what I'm preaching to you today, that does not mean you won't one day have to stand before God and answer for your rejection. You might say, preacher, that's fine. You believe in the resurrection. One of these days you can be resurrected, but not me. I'm going to die, go to the earth, and it's just going to be done with because I don't believe in God. No, friend. One of these days when you die without Christ, the Bible says, just as the rich man did in Luke chapter 16, the rich man lifted in hell, he lifted his eyes being in torment. The reality is when you die, you'll lift your eyes being in torment. And even that won't be the end. After however long the economy and calendar of God continues on, when this moment comes, you'll be plucked for a moment of relief out of that place of torment, only to stand at the judgment seat of God at the great white throne judgment. And that book will be searched, but it's not searched to find out if your name is in it. It's just searched to show you that it's not. And when your name is not found there, the Bible says you'll be cast in the lake of fire. Some might say, preacher... Why does there have to be a, a, a resurrection for that? Well, and, and you, you don't have to accept this, but I, I believe this. I believe that hell is a spiritual place. And those that are in hell right now are in hell without a body, but they're in spiritual torment. I believe that the lake of fire is going to be a physical place. And I believe just as those of us that know the Lord will be given a new body to enjoy all of eternity, all of the, the, the experiences and pleasures of living in the bliss of God's presence, we need to be given a body that can sustain that in the same way. I believe that the lost will be given a body. A body that won't be glorified, but it will be galvanized against the fires of hell. It will feel, it will experience, it will torment, but it will not pass away. 
Throughout all eternity, you'll live in that existence. You say, preacher, I don't know if I believe that. Well, it's true. Whether you accept it, whether you believe it or not, I'm here to tell you it's true. In fact, this whole message this morning, you know, the thrust of it has been it's true. The resurrection is true. The crucifixion is true. The Word of God, it's true. And if that's true, and we believe that it is, then that also means that what it teaches and preaches to us about hell and about the eternal destination of the lost is also true. So I wonder this morning, if you're here today, and again, I'm proud for you to be here, if you know the Lord, if you don't know the Lord, if you came for Mama or came for Mama or came for whoever, I'm just proud you're here. You're our honored guest. But if you're here today without Christ, then you have two choices. You can turn around and say, forget that. I'm not interested. And one day you'll still have to answer for it. Or you can yield to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can come down to this altar and let someone pray with you or take a Bible and show you from the Word of God how to place your faith in Christ, how to approach unto Him. And you can have confidence that you'll not have part in that second resurrection unto torment, but you'll have part in that first resurrection unto bliss and unto eternal joy in the presence of God. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed.